Well, last week as we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, there was a few statements that the Apostle Paul made uh, that uh, were, were quite intriguing. Uh, they are intriguing to me and, and probably to you as well, that raised the issue of work. And, and let me draw your attention back to those words very quickly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 11 in particular, as Paul in that section, beginning in verse 9 and all the way to verse 12, talks about the promotion and the protection of brotherly love, he gives this interesting admonition to the Thessalonians. He, he urges them, he commands them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to their own business, and to work with their own hands, just as Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had commanded them when they first arrived in Thessalonica. Now, you, you may not get much from that particular verse, but what is interesting to note as we're going to see this morning, as we, we do a little bit of a survey here uh, based upon verse 11, a survey of Paul's interaction with the Thessalonians, that there is something much more that we are to see here, and it's going to be found specifically in the language uh, that Paul uses here and, and elsewhere, and as he connects these uh, different sections in his, in his correspondence together, we're, we're going to see Paul address the Thessalonians on some very important issues related to work and to charity. Now remember, our our topic last week was the promotion and protection of brotherly love. That whenever you have brotherly love truly operating and excelling, you always have the potential for abuses. And so Paul, aware of that, is quick to introduce here instruction as to how to protect brotherly love to keep it pure, to make sure it's not exploited, and to ensure that it is directed to the right causes. So we're going to look a little bit more at that theme and, and look at, at what Paul says in this entire letter, as well as in Second Thessalonians. We'll do a little bit of a survey here this morning, and the title of this is called Lessons from a Leather Worker, What First and Second Thessalonians Teach About Work and Welfare. Now, as we look even at our own culture today and what is happening in society, we, we know that this kind of instruction is very apropos, very fitting for us as well. You have, within the last two years in particular, plans being implemented for a rapid expansion of welfare. You have greater and increasing calls for things like guaranteed minimum income, regardless of one's effort at labor. You have government programs being rolled out continually to condition people to expecting regular payments from the government. You have increasing demands for wealth redistribution and the growing popularity of socialism. What we see is is really an unapologetic effort taking place today within our society to make people directly dependent upon the government looking to the government to supply for their own needs, and and looking on that government dependency as actually a virtue, that it is something noble and honorable, something to be promoted, that we would be dependent upon the government to give us money, to pay us, not in terms of a response to labor. I'm not talking about employees of the government, 
I'm talking about just residents in the country, citizens receiving payments from the government simply because they live here. That today is more and more considered to be honorable and a virtue. At the same time, corresponding with this is this growing tendency to, to present uh, and to portray a hard work ethic as inherently oppressive. In fact, even racist. That if you promote a work ethic and talk about personal responsibility, that is all a part of, of white supremacy. It's all part of this oppressive Judeo-Christian value system. And you know it's rules. There's a direct attempt to try and root that out of society. But what does the Bible actually teach on these things? And we could go to various places, book of Proverbs for one of them. But actually, First and Second Thessalonians are really key portions of Scripture that address this issue. Paul, in these letters, uses a particular situation going on within the Thessalonian context to address the issues of work and welfare. So how does Paul do this? Where does he do this in this correspondence? Here are the pertinent texts. First of all, we already studied one of them, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12. This is this paragraph where Paul promotes and protects brotherly love. And I'll alert your attention to the middle of verse 10 and on. He says, after calling upon them to excel still more, he says, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. That is one of the the pertinent texts. Another one is found a little later in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 14. You may not see it immediately in the translation, but it is there in the Greek, and I'll explain this in just a moment. But Paul says in verse 14, you can look in your Bibles there, we're going to be looking at a, a, a few of these texts, Chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. We're going to come back to that. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Then the next significant text comes in chapter 3 in Thessalonians. And I'm going to show you just in a minute how these texts all line up. But, but turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3 has Paul's most extended discussion anywhere in his writings on the issue of work and welfare. This is a critical text. If you want to understand what the Bible teaches on work, you have to consider this text especially. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6-15, to and I'll read through it all. Paul says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from Every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. With labor and hardship, we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even 
when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy. Punish him as a brother. Now, when we look at these three texts, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, we come up with three crucial questions that we want to answer related to these texts. Number one, who are the unruly and undisciplined? Who are the unruly or undisciplined? That's a term that is, is used in these texts to one degree or another. They're all intertwined by the reference to this group of people. Who are they? Who are they? Number two, what was the motivation for their disobedience? They're unruly. They're undisciplined. What, what motivated them in that lifestyle? That's another very important question for us to consider. And then number three, how did the Apostle Paul respond? So in response to these, these this, this group within the Thessalonian congregation, how does the Apostle Paul respond to them? Those are three very important questions as we gather from Paul, who gave us these inspired writings, these lessons about work and welfare. Let's look at the first of these questions. Who were the unruly or undisciplined? Now, what's interesting to note is that Paul uses a unique term here, which the NASB, our New American Standard Bibles, what the NASB translates either as unruly or undisciplined. It it rotates between those those two terms. So, for example, we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. There's the term there, the unruly. Now, the Greek word that's used there, you don't need to, uh, to, to write this down, but the Greek word that's used there, I draw your attention to it because it is so unusual. The Greek word that Paul uses is the term ataktos. Ataktos, the unruly. It's an adjective. Then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, we have that same word used again, this time as an adverb, but Paul writes this, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And again, that very unique, very rare term is used, this time as an adverb, ataktos. Then in the very next verse, Paul will use the verb form of this word in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 3, when he says, we, Paul Silvanus and Timothy, we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. You could say, he did not act in an unruly manner among you. It's the same root idea from the same root, and here it's used as a verb as atakteo. And then finally, one more reference is found in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 11, 
where Paul writes this, some of you are leading an undisciplined life. Some of you are leading an unruly life. Again, that same adverb is used there, atactos. Now, you see these four texts, you see these four words, and the reality of it is, is that these words are not used nowhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere else in any of Paul's writings. They are unique to the Thessalonian situation, unique to the Thessalonian letters. And so it, it, it raises the interest here. Why is Paul reserving these terms for this element within the Thessalonian congregation? What, what's, what's unique about them? What's going on? And there's been two basic proposals related to this to explain what these unruly people are. And we already noticed as we read those texts, it has something to do with work. It has something to do with dependency. It has something to do with not working with their own hands, but being busybodies. It's related somehow to that. But what specifically should we, how, how specifically should we interpret this? Now, some commentators and some translations as well, for example, the ESV the English Standard Version, translates the term and understands that term as idleness. The idea here is basically laziness. These are those who are just loaf around. You know, they're just lazy. It's, it's the classic example of the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. These are just those who are not motivated to work. And so the issue here then, if that is the case, is that Paul is dealing with people who are immature, people who are lazy, people just aren't motivated to work, and that's their primary problem. But I don't think that's the best way to look at it, and there's reasons why. It is idleness, but there is something more to it. When you read those texts, as we've read already, there is an issue of of more than just laziness, of loafing, there is this idea that there, there was something that, that was specifically motivating them to be this way. And it was resulting in, in chaos, it was instability. And it was something where these people were not just sitting at home on the couch all day, they were getting involved in other people's business. They were being a drain on other people in this in this ideological way, and, and so it, it comes down to this, not just laziness, not just trying to get them off the couch, get them out of the bed, but it was, it was a, a, a refusal to work, an actual ideological refusal to work. And I, I do think that this is the best way to look at it. And so the NASB, and I would say too, the the, if you have a New King James Version, it translates them as undisciplined and, and, and unruly. And so the, the word unruly in particular helps to convey the problem of this contingence. They were those who used from inner convictions and practice. They refused to provide for their own needs and instead, they lived off the resources of others. This was a problem in the Thessalonian congregation. There were some in that congregation that were refusing to work. They were expecting the support of others. 
And in their refusal to work and their expectation of charity, they were getting involved in like busybodies in other people's lives and putting pressure on others to support their needs. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. We dealt with this a little bit last week as we looked at that paragraph beginning verse 9. But again, let me devote your, divert your attention back to there for a moment where Paul says this, make it your to lead a quiet life, not a chaotic one, not a rancorous one, a quiet life, tranquil. And make it your ambition to attend to your own business, to the works of your own hands, to your own thing. And work with your hands. Make it your ambition to work with your hands, to be productive, to be busy, to supply for your own needs. That was what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12 showing that this is not just a problem of of people staying in their basements and not coming out to work. No, these are people whose lifestyles are directly impacting the other members of the congregation. He goes on to say this, it is having such an impact that, that they are demeaning their own testimony. He goes on to say this, that when you do that, you will then be able to behave properly toward outsiders And then, of course, not be in any need. So there's definitely a moral element to this, definitely an element of ideological lifestyle here that Paul is confronting. We see it even more so in, in 2 Thessalonians as it appears that even after Paul's first letter, this contingent in the church has not really changed their ways. They continue in this direction, so he's got to address it again. And in verses 7 to 12, he says this, You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined, there's the word, we did not act in an unruly manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day. We would not be a burden to any of you, for even when we were with you, we would give you this order if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but, now notice the contrast, acting like busybodies. And so there was this this disruptive lifestyle that was affecting the church that Paul had To confront. And so he ends that there in verse 12, says this Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So that is that is what marks this group. They're an unruly group. Those who refuse to work, it wasn't because of health, it was their inner conviction to work. It wasn't necessary. Others should support them. And, and this unruly group was, was causing problems for the Thessalonian congregation. So that answers our first question, who is Paul dealing with here? Who are these unruly people, those who are unwilling to work and disruptive within the congregation? That moves us to our second question, what was the motivation for this unruliness, the motivation for their disobedience? 
Why did some reject Paul's instruction, refuse to work, and exploit the charity of others? Now, there's been various attempts to explain this, and we have to be very careful here because Paul just doesn't give us the details on the exact motivation. He doesn't explain to us why they were motivated, what their ideological bent was that led them in that direction. So we have to be very careful about dogmatism on that question. We have to be careful about speculation on that. But there have been two proposals that I think are important for us to consider and and, and work through and think as to whether this was really a factor in their lives or not. And the first one, it's a very popular one, and it is this, that that the reason, the motivation for their unruliness, their disobedience, was what some would call an eschatological excitement. An eschatological excitement. Well, what is that? Uh, An excitement over eschatology. Well, a little bit more in detail. We know that 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians give us a lot of details about the future, about God's future plan and his plan of redemption, what, what's going to come in the future as God brings certain stages in history to a close and begins other stages. And indeed, the Thessalonian correspondence contains a lot of that. And even when we look at 2 Thessalonians and compare it to 1 Thessalonians, we can see that the, 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 the Thessalonians were struggling with proper understanding of these eschatological features. And so very common response is, this is what was happening. The Thessalonians were excited about the future, these undisciplined, unruly bunch. They were excited about the future, and so their, their ideology, their convictions, were actually theological in nature. They basically thought that Christ's coming was imminent. There's no point to work. There's no point to be productive because Christ was going to come at any time. The, 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 the flavor of these letters indicates a very heavy eschatological influence and interest in the Thessalonian congregation. They were vibrantly awaiting Christ's coming. And, and so this idea is that labor was looked on as worldly. It was looked on as a lack of faith. And instead, the best way to live out these eschatological realities was simply to stop working and wait. Wait and see and be ready for the Lord's return. Now, there are some problems with this view. I don't think it's the right one. There's several reasons for this. First of all, Paul himself does not make any direct association between these problems. He keeps the issue of eschatology quite distinct in his treatment of the issue from his treatment of the issue. He doesn't bring them together. In fact, he nowhere in his admonishment in in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12, or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, nowhere does he intermix with his instruction direct statements about eschatology, about the future times. He doesn't do that. In fact, look, for example, back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
As, as you remember, last Sunday we looked at that text, verses 9 to 12, where Paul talks about the protection and the promotion of brotherly love. He, and, he, and he ends that particular paragraph speaking of those who needed to live a quiet life and attend to their own business and work with their own hands. Now, some have said, well, Paul just automatically then launches onto eschatology. Look at verse 13. He then says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. And then he goes on into this next text that we're going to study in in weeks to come. He starts talking about the dead in Christ and the return of the Lord. And people have just made that association. Well, that's on Paul's mind. These two groups are associated, or these two issues are associated. But you need to understand that verse 13 marks a distinct transition in Paul's thought. It's a distinct transition. Moreover, the problem that Paul is addressing in verses 13 to 18 deals with those who are mourning and worried over the dead in Christ. They weren't not working. The problem that Paul addresses in chapter 4, 13 to 18 was not that they weren't working. The problem that Paul agreed that those who died before Christ's return would never get their resurrected bodies, their glorified bodies. They died before Christ came back. They're gone. And Paul had to deal specifically with that issue. It's a different issue. There's a significant transition that takes place in the grammar between verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Moreover, there's an even more important argument here to be considered, and that is this. What we read in this correspondence is that Paul had to deal with this issue even before he writes 1 Thessalonians. Paul had to deal with this issue even before Timothy brought back the report to tell him how the Thessalonians' faith was still lacking. Paul emphasizes this in, 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 in these texts preached in Thessalonica. If you look at chapter 4, verse 11, right at the end there, he says, just as we commanded you. You're to do these things, Thessalonians, just like we commanded you when we were back with you months ago. And he does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, where he says this, For even when we were with you, we gave you this order. So this was an issue that was prevalent in the Thessalonian community even before Paul really starts establishing them in eschatology. There's something more that's going on here than just eschatological excitement. And I think... That's what leads us to a second option. And again, I have to be careful about being dogmatic here, but I think there's a lot more to be said about a different explanation for this that seems to fit the context and the actual exegesis of the letter far better. And it's this. Paul is dealing with a social custom. He's dealing with a cultural norm. And so the motivation that prompted these these unruly members of the congregation, that motivation was something that extended prior to their conversion. It was a motivation that was part of their lives prior to hearing the gospel. It was something that, that they just grew up with that was part and parcel of the culture around them. That is what Paul is dealing with. Their motivation was cultural. 
As I said, this was something that Paul mentions explicitly when he talks about these unruly people, that he had to address this issue when he first got to Thessalonica, when he first arrived on the scene and he began preaching there. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul is saying, we had to command you in these things. We had to teach you about work and welfare already at the very beginning. And it suggests to us, this was a characteristic of the Thessalonian culture. There was something going on here. It was one of those things that was still lacking, as we've talked about, as Paul receives that report from Timothy in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He describes how Timothy finally came to bring him a report about the Thessalonians. And, he, and Timothy comes, and Paul then says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, that he longs to return to the Thessalonians to complete what is still lacking. It was still a deficiency here. So what was that social custom? Again, Paul doesn't describe it in detail. And, and so we have to be careful here, again, about being text there of said, well, there's one of two things that suggest an answer for this question. And one of them is this, that there was a perhaps a disdain for manual labor. And it was there's a lot of good reason for this, especially within the more elite aspects of Greek culture. Remember, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, very much a very key area in Greek history. And there were a lot of elites there, and the elites did not like manual labor. It's kind of like today. Uh, You know, just manual labor is something to look down upon. It's undignified. That mentality certainly existed in that day as well. We know that. And so perhaps that is what was this cultural norm. There was one Roman statesman, a lawyer and a philosopher by the name of Cicero, who said this, a citizen who gives his labor for money degrades himself to the rank of slaves. Cicero, a disdain for manual labor, a citizen who gives his labor for money degrades himself to the rank of slaves. Someone who lived during the time of of Paul, Plutarch, a little bit after Paul, Plutarch, a Greek philosopher and a priest at the temple of Delphi, which was not far away, actually, from Thessalonica, relatively speaking. Plutarch said this, while we delight in the work of craftsmen, we despise the workmen. In other words, all that to say that there was a definite disdain for tradesmen, for artisans, for those who were occupied in the trades and worked with their hands. The Greek elite did not respect them. And so the argument goes that perhaps that's what is here, this low regard for manual labor. And so what Paul is doing is he is elevating the dignity of working with your own hands. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, Paul says. In fact, you should do it. He's commending it. And as we know, Paul himself was a worker with his own hands. Now, that's one option. And there's a lot of, a, a lot of arguments that would be in favor of this. But there's also another interesting option to consider. When we study the, the area, especially around Macedonia, uh, and look at 
the mentality toward work and, and welfare, we notice that even in that era, there was a dependency on welfare that was cultivated by a particular kind of, of social interaction. There was a practice called in the Latin providentia. Providentia. In this kind of social practice, this cultural norm, the unemployed, those who did not want to work, would solicit handouts from wealthy patrons or benefactors, those who were the elite, those who had all kinds of money and and all kinds of slaves and workers and, and so on and so forth. The unemployed would go and solicit handouts from these patrons, these benefactors, essentially to, to presume upon or, or invite them to use their wealth for purposes of charity. And what was interesting to note, and this is so similar to our society today, is, is if you just think about this, what, what is interesting to note was that even in that Macedonian culture, when patrons would provide charity to these unemployed who did not want to work, who just wanted to receive charity, these patrons would gain an upward movement in social influence. The society would would put greater uh, accolades to them because of all the different people that they they were helping to support, people who didn't want to work, and they would provide this charity and they would move up in their, their, their social standing, and in return for their charity, the people who would receive their handouts, their gifts, would promise to give them accolades in the public square. So very much one of these, you know, factor kind of approach where you can walk through the city square and the people who are receiving that help would pr- sing your praises and And that would be your way to move up the ladder of the social elite and have even greater influence in civic affairs. That that was happening at that time. There was a quid pro quo nature to this this kind of cultural activity. And, And ironically enough, this is what we even see today. If you see how government acts in many cases is to operate on the basis of the same kind of interaction, to promise handouts in return for votes, to promise handouts in return for power, in return for popularity, still very much operates today. Now again, this is not to decry or to denounce the actual concept of charity. Brotherly love is to excel, and it is to help in the needs of those who have genuine needs due to illness, due to tragedy, due to unforeseen circumstances where a person is legitimately in need. And the church was commanded by the Apostle Paul not just to do well in that, but to excel in that still more. So we're not talking about the mere idea of charity, the mere idea of helping those in need. But what this was was a kind of quid pro quo structure where dependency was cultivated and those who gave them money received benefits 
in terms of social standing. And, and so they would cultivate the poor in order to get their, their influence. This seems to be more of what Paul is dealing with here because of the things that are found in, in these, these verses. There seems to be here a, a perpetual cycle of dependency that Paul has to specifically address within the church and, and essentially say to those working men, cut it out, or those non-working men, cut it out. You've got to stop this. You've got to stop this. This is not brotherly love. This is not how brotherly love is to be enacted and promoted. Brotherly love does not exist so that the wealthy can use the needy in order to rise up in in their prominence. And brotherly love is not needed to help the poor so that they, if they don't want to work, can simply continue to receive their help as so long as they keep giving accolades to the people who are giving them money. It was a problem then, and it is a problem in all of history. Charity, brotherly love when it is truly found, is, is always under threat, under threat of, of abuse. So how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond? Well, let me say this. It's interesting to note that Paul doesn't treat this just as a minor issue. And even today, many would just say, this is just an, a political issue, right versus left. Paul doesn't treat it that way. He treats it as a right versus wrong. He treats it very sternly. In fact, you have some of the most sternest language about work and welfare found anywhere in the New Testament in Paul's own writings in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So what does he say? What does he say? Well, first of all, Paul pointed in his response to his own example. Paul pointed to his own example and essentially says, look at me, and he doesn't do this for his own accolades. He does this because he follows Christ, and he understands his role as a shepherd is to be an example for others to follow. So Paul says, follow my example. Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. He says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. As well, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-9, you have the word example used twice. Our example, our example. He uses the word model as well, that we would model this for you. You see, Paul, Paul emphasized his own example as, as how the Thessalonians themselves, especially this contingent within the church, should model their lives. And when we look at Paul, even from Thessalonians and the other uh, testimonies to his life, whether in his own letters or in the book of Acts, we, we know this, Paul worked with his own hands. According to Acts 18, verses 1 to 3, he was either a, t- a tent maker or he was a leather worker. Probably best to see it as a leather worker. He would go from place to place with a little satchel of, of uh, awls and knives. would be very easy with that kind of a trade to move from city to city. And when he arrived, he would buy leather on the spot, dried, tanned leather, and and then he would either make tents, he would repair belts, he would repair all kinds of leather goods. That's what Paul did. And Paul says, look at my example. And when we look at the Thessalonian correspondence, whether it's 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 or 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, Paul was not afraid of long and hard hours of labor. He didn't hold back from it. 
He didn't look down on that as some kind of slavery. He didn't look down on that as as some kind of illegitimate lifestyle. He recognized its importance. Moreover, Paul made it a priority to provide for his own needs. As a healthy male, he recognized that he needed to support for his own needs. He needed to eat his own bread. And Paul even states that because he was laboring on behalf of the Thessalonians, he could receive compensation. Paul will say elsewhere, the labor is always worthy of his wages. And there shouldn't be an expectation that in the preaching of the gospel and the shepherding of the elders, he doesn't say they should just always do it for free. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18 makes it clear. Paul says, those who work hard are worthy of double honor. But Paul said here, he said, I'm going to show you the example, and he repeats this with the greatest frequency in this Thessalonian correspondence to show that Paul is providing for his own needs. Number two, not only did Paul say, look at me, I myself am not loafing, I'm not being unruly, I'm not, I'm not demanding the charity of others. That's an example. But number two, he directly exhorted the disobedient. He said, get to work. We saw that already in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands. He directly admonishes them. He says, live in tranquility. Mind your own business. Use your own hands to meet your needs. In 2 Thessalonians, same consistent teaching. He says this, if anyone is not willing to work, he should not eat either. And so the idea here is, and again, we understand Paul is addressing people who should be working, all right? He's not addressing those who, due to very difficult circumstances in life, cannot work, those who would love to work but can't. He's not addressing them. He is addressing those who are not willing to work, and he says, don't eat unless you've attempted labor. He says, work without disturbing others. Work in a quiet fashion. Work in a quiet fashion. Don't be a busybody and then eat your own bread. Enjoy the fruit of your own labor. Paul emphasizes that. So he, first of all, says, look at my example and follow me. Then he directly admonishes the the unruly and says, get to work. And then he addresses the church. Paul has words for the rest of the congregation on this issue as well. He enlisted the church and essentially says, do not tolerate this unruliness. Do not tolerate this unruliness. Notice what he says in verse 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's that word there, the unruly. He's referring back to that contingent within the congregation. He says to the church, you, church congregation, Admonish those among you who are unruly. We could look at First Thess- or Second Thessalonians three and, and, and verse six and verses fourteen to fifty. Notice how strong he places this this responsibility on the shoulders of the rest of the congregation. He even says this. He says, "We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life." Those who are engaged in this kind of quid pro quo will get charity, will help you up the social ladder. Avoid them. Avoid them. Stay away. He says, you know, identify these wrongdoers 
He says, take special note of that person and, and do not associate with them, but admonish them as a brother. These are to be identified, their influence is to be stopped, and they are to be called lovingly as brothers to repentance. This is pretty serious language. And again, this is important in our day because there's nothing new under the sun. The same sinful patterns, the same basic attitudes of the flesh have always been present. And in a day like ours, where a hard work ethic is, is being disparaged, and where the concept of, of the, this expectation of, of charity is, is so widespread, we as a church need to look to the Scriptures and say, what does God teach about the value of work, the importance of work, where charity is truly needed, and how to ensure and protect that 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 charity within the context of brotherly love is always going to be used for the right thing. And we know what this looks like, and you know those times when when there will be someone who is making very foolish decisions, they're not willing to look or to heed counsel, they're resisting the kind of of counsel that, is, that you're giving to them, and, and, and they just want to presume upon charity, Paul is essentially saying there is a place for tough love. There is a place for getting to that point where you say to them, okay, we have admonished you, we've instructed you, we've shown you the word of God, and now, until you do something, you cannot presume upon the charity of the church. The church's charity must be carefully maintained, and, and saved for those who are truly in need, for the orphans, for the widows, the single moms, those dealing with cancer and very difficult issues in life that prevent them from doing what they would love to do. Brotherly love needs to be protected and provide for those. Now, just a few final lessons for today as we close. Number one, it is our duty to work hard and to provide for our own needs. Yes, the curse in Genesis 3 means that working hard and providing for our own needs will only come as a result of sweat, and it will only come as we have to work amidst the thistles and the thorns. But the presence of the thistles and the thorns and the reality of the The sweat does not eliminate the need for working to provide for our own needs. Number two, in God's economy, the supply, bread, the supply for our needs is to be found in the fruit of our labor. We are to make a direct association between those things. As a normal pattern of life, in God's economy for us in this sin-cursed world, The supply for our needs is to be found in the fruit of our labor. We have to teach our children that. We have to have that as a mindset, as those who would have a a right testimony in the world. Our supply comes from the fruit of our labors. Number three, a strong work ethic is essential to protect the unity of the church and the purity of our gospel proclamation. Now again, our society is rapidly moving towards socialism and And as any person from a socialist country knows, that only sounds good for a while until the socialists really do have control, and then it becomes merciless. Socialism promises uh, a lot of things and will never deliver. 
And, and yet at this point in time, this is what is being promoted in our culture. But we have to remember this, and we must believe the scriptures, that a strong work ethic is going to be best for promoting strength within the church and the proper expression of brotherly love. And at the same time, it will be our best testimony in front of a watching world that has become addicted to handouts. Number four, to rely upon the resources of others because of a refusal to work is not a gray issue. It's not a gray issue. It's not just a matter of preference or personality. This is an issue of disobedience. To rely upon charity while refusing to do anything about your own situation is a matter of disobedience. Again, it is not a right versus left political kind of debate. It is a right versus wrong issue. Number five, The church undermines Christian love by normalizing dependency and minimizing responsibility. The church undermines Christian love by normalizing dependency and minimizing responsibility. And again, in our culture, this is is very strongly rejected. This is, is rejected because the idea is that Christian love means that you do not need to address issues like dependency and personal responsibility. But in reality, that always leads very far away from true Christian love. And then finally, Christians must actively stimulate one another toward love and labor. Stimulate one another toward love and toward work. That is a Christian duty that we all have. And by doing that, we will protect brotherly love and we will also promoted in its best possible sense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is not silent on these issues, especially as we face them today. As the culture presses upon us in so many different, through so many different means, and it seems closer than ever before, in terms of its influence and its opportunities to mold us to its own form. We pray that you would use these truths to transform our thinking so that we would not be conformed to this world. This world attacks us on all sides, through the education system, through the workplace, through phones and media. We pray you would give us the mind we need to examine these things rightly according to the standard of your word, even as it relates to work and to charity. We pray you'd give us the right understanding so that brotherly love could indeed be promoted and protected in its purest forms that are possible here in our midst. And we ask this so that Christ would be glorified among us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.